truly I tell you, Jesus said, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and he will do even greater works than these because I am going to the Father. We hear many things in that sentence. We hear a call to faith in Christ, the one who believes in me. Faith in Christ is the foundation. It's the main thing. It's the cornerstone. It's the starting place. Faith that Christ is who he says he is. Faith that Christ I should say faith that what Christ says is true. Faith that you and I are sinners. We cannot earn our way to God. We cannot please God apart from Christ. Christ is the only way of salvation, the only hope, the only truth. And when it comes to what the world says and how it believes and what Christ says and what he calls us to believe, Christ is always right. Christ always has the final word. Christ came and lived the life we should live, died the death we deserve to die. And he says, in essence, if you want to be saved, if you want to be counted right before God, spared the wrath and the penalty of sins, then believe in me, says Christ. But we hear as well in John 14, 12, a call to work. Because the one who believes in him will also do the works that he does. Faith in him was the foundation, but the product is the works. Works do not justify us to be saved, but they verify that we have been saved. Because if we truly have faith, truly believe in what Christ has done and what he has said just how you might believe in the platform of a political figure and you get passionate about it, so if you believe in the Messiah, you should get passionate about it. Christ cared for the sick, the lonely, the outcast. He fed the hungry. He preached the truth to crowds. We will also do the works that he does. And if we don't, we must. But we hear John 14:12 not just a call to faith and a call to work but a challenge to work. And he will do even greater works than these. Greater works people wrestle with this phrase greater? Christ did quite a bit. He walked on water, he fed crowds with lunchables, he raised people from the dead. So Some people say, well, perhaps Christ meant geographically. The movement of Christ worldwide now as opposed to just ancient Palestine. However Christ meant it, it is a challenge, something we should hear personally and be moved to by his challenge, his beckoning, his grace to do. Again, not to be saved. We already are in Christ, but to be about his business. And then the last part of Jesus' words here, we hear a grounding of authority. Because I am going to the Father. Christ 
has the audacity to call us to faith in him, to call us to work for him, to challenge us to work for him because of the grounding that he has in the authority of the Father. Christ's authority is directly in the Father, and it's the authority we can live and operate out of from the Father. This is David's grounding in our passage today. He's going to do a greater work, not because of any grounding of authority in the world, but because of a grounding of authority in the Father. We are in 1 Samuel 17, and we're building towards the climax. We're not going to get there today, but we're building towards the climax of the story of David and Goliath. David has come to the battle line to find that though it seems the Philistines are only 15 miles away from basically undoing and destroying Israel completely. That is 15 miles away from the powerhouse cities of Israel. And on top of that, they have this giant Goliath taunting Israel and putting them to fright and stagnation. And the stakes are high. So this shepherd David, who has been tending sheep while the rest of Israel's men had been out to war, although to no avail... He comes to feed his brothers and catch up on the news about the war. And at the sight of Goliath, at the sight of Goliath taunting Israel and blaspheming God, David decides that he's the one who'll step up to do what this Goliath is calling people to do. He'll fight him. So he had just come into King Saul's tent who tried to stop him from this suicide attempt in his mind. Goliath is a seasoned warrior. He has been from a kid, and you have the smell of sheep on you, basically. But David says, hey, about the sheep, God help me neutralize some bears and lions. He'll take care of this big oaf out here, too. That's kind of where we're at. We're going to be covering verses 38 through 47 of chapter 17. If you have a Bible, I invite you one last time, if you'd like to stand and read the Lord's word with me. 1 Samuel 17, 38 through 47. Then Saul had his own military clothes put on David. He put a bronze helmet on David's head and had him put on armor. David strapped his sword on over the military clothes and tried to walk, but he was not used to them. I can't walk in these, David said to Saul. I'm not used to them. So David took them off. Instead, he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the weighty and put them in his pouch in his shepherd's bag. Then with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. The Philistine came closer and closer to David with the shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he despised him because he was just a youth, healthy and handsome. He said to David, am I a dog that you come against me with sticks? Then he cursed David by his gods. Come here, the Philistine called to David, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with a sword, spear, and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of armies and the God of the ranks of Israel. You have defied him. Today the Lord will hand you over to me. Today I'll strike you down, remove your head, and give the corpses of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the wild creatures of the earth. Then all the world will know that Israel 
has a God. And this whole assembly will know that it was not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. He will hand you over to us. Let's pray. Father, we enter again a familiar story. So easy for us to think we know it and to pass by it quickly. Many of us have our solid 100% thoughts and interpretations of this passage. And to study it in any other way is to do detriment to it in our minds. I want to know what your voice says. I want to hear what you would say to us today from this passage. That you would get our hearts and minds fixed on you, open in hearing the shepherd's voice. Because as sheep, we know your voice. I pray that you would move me out of the way and say what it is that you desire, that you would be glorified and that we would be built up in the faith and moved to action to do greater things for you. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. There is the world's grounding and the Father's grounding. There's the way the world views things, and it makes sense, and it's the culture we're born into. It's what all the scientists say to do, and that is this. Make observations, make educated judgments, know the track record, recognize that the stronger and the fitter And the bigger usually wins over the weaker, the unfit, and the smaller. And that if you are weak or impoverished or obscure, you're not going to advance. The Father's grounding doesn't need to take into consideration of what we know and observe. The Father seems to play by his own rules. Sometimes the father is able to do something that doesn't seem right to everybody else and seems to send people out, not based on what they can do, but based on who they believe in. Israel wanted a king that would fight their wars for them. And we saw, as we went through the book of First Samuel, that God seemed to be giving them that king on a silver platter. He was tall. He was handsome. He was prestigious. He went to war first thing. He took out the enemy with the father's help. He was accepted. He was king material. This is our warrior. This is our king. But the thing is, it seems that while Saul was made king by God, he was never for God. He was never moved to do the Father's will completely. We read again here in verse 38, Then Saul had his own military clothes put on David. He put a a bronze helmet on David's head and had him put on armor. We ended last week with Saul saying to David, Go and may the Lord be with you. So Saul blessed David, and here he dressed David. (laughs) 
Saul was doing uh, this to the king who would succeed him. He put the king's clothes on him, kind of ironic in that moment. David strapped his sword on over the military clothes and tried to walk, but he was not used to them. I can't walk in these, David said to Saul. I'm not used to them. So David took them off. Now, some say David was likely still a boy, maybe a teenager at this point. Um, A young man at best with armor that didn't fit him. I just wondered if he was a young man and maybe the armor did fit him. But just as he said, he wasn't used to the gear. Uh, Whatever the case, we're supposed to see the contrast. Goliath, with so much armor and such that he needs a shield bearer in front of him. And versus David, a young man with no armor. And I love how David just seems to have said matter-of-factly, almost without hesitation. He's not bemoaning the fact there's no armor. He's just saying, well, nice try, but I'll go without it. It's not a big deal. Don't worry, Saul. (laughs) And I made the point last week. Who was most put off by Goliath's taunting? David. So who's going to do something about it? David. Oftentimes, God calls us to tasks that we're already equipped for, even if it doesn't appear logically that we are. That sounds illogical because it is. (laughs) But I guess it's how God works. Hear me out. Hey, boys, Jesus says, let's feed this huge crowd. With what food? Right? (laughs) An army stood stagnant on the battle line as Goliath taunted them week after week. Who's going to fight me? Not one of the warriors in the army. Perhaps many of them seasoned with lots of experience. In fact, 1 Samuel 14.52 told us that whenever Saul noticed any strong or valiant man, he enlisted him. Saul's been scouting warriors for his army, but none of them rose to the task of fighting this fierce warrior that they've, probably the fiercest warrior they've met in their lives. See, the world's grounding here wasn't enough. The world's grounding said, here is Goliath. He is unbeatable. We observe this. He's big. He's loaded to the point of being invincible. He will win. There is no one bigger than him. There's no one stronger than him. There's no one who will even come close to being his equal. How is God over Israel going to handle it? Let's send the shepherd out there. (laughs) See what he can do. (laughs) Because God's not sending people to take down the enemies of God on the world's grounding, but on the Father's grounding. With the heart and the faith and the character to lead upon the Father's grounding. That's David. He had the one thing Saul needed, Saul didn't have, faith, that it was actually God about to fight their war for them, not anyone else. Friends, hear this, that is the reality, that's the Father's grounding, that God is real, present, effective, and does change the outcome of events When the world's grounding says, the science shows us what will happen, faith says, God will decide what happens. That's the reality. I'm not just making a a subversive comment here that science is bad. It's just a phrase. But do you catch the difference here between the world's grounding? My best educated guess is that this is the outcome in the Father's grounding. The Father will decide what happens. So David heads out with what he has already has 
when God has called him. He said, we read in verse 40, he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the weighty and put them in his pouch in his shepherd's bag. Then with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. God calls us to tasks that we're already equipped for, even if it doesn't appear logically that we are. Have any of you ever read that book, God Smuggler, about Brother Andrew? I love it. There were just parts of the book where Brother Andrew was coming up on a task of what where logic and the world would dictate one must have to complete that task. Whether it be Andrew being in a foreign city, his car was broke down, those who were going to fix it expected money for it. And even while it's getting fixed, Andrew was wondering, how is this going to be paid for? Or when, when Andrew's at a checkpoint going into a communist country where bringing reading material like Bibles was against the law, and they go through Andrew's luggage, and Andrew's wondering, how is God going to get him past this checkpoint? Because the police is going to see it as soon as they open my bag in plain sight, all these Bibles. And God was faithful every single time. It's a very interesting book. There's even a little bit of biblical justice, ironic justice, in David's selection of five smooth stones. Now here's my thinking, not knowing Israelite shepherds or how they think. I just think David's probably gathering some weapons he's used before. Maybe he he slung his stones at predators before, and taking into consideration Goliath's uh, set up instead of going in for close combat, maybe some projectile harder than an arrow that might have some weight behind it. Maybe that was David's thinking. That's what I think. And I'm still inclined to think that, but in the providence of God, I think there's some ironic justice behind it. Because in Leviticus 24:16 says, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord must be put to death. The whole community is to stone him. <laughs> if he blasphemes the name, he is to be put to death, whether the resident alien or the native now was david saying i'll show that goliath he dares blaspheme god's name i'll get some stones that's what the law says to do that'll be a fitting end i don't know if he's thinking that maybe maybe david was that conscientious of the law in that moment part of me is more inclined to think that again he was just gathering a familiar weapon to beat him with and biblical justice by god's providence was what was happening it's not a point to argue on but David approaches, and now the pre-battle trash-talking commences. This is where football started in the Bible. No, just kidding. But in Goliath, we hear the world's attitude. The Philistine came closer and closer to David with the shield-bearer in front of him, which just a trivial note here, but what were the terms that Goliath wanted? You read in chapter 17, verses 4 through 9, you can do that later today, but it was this way. Basically, Goliath is saying, let's settle it this way. It's me, one of the Philistines, against you, one of the Israelites. But I guess, since Goliath is too loaded down with protective armor, he gets a pass, and it's really two Philistines against one Israelite. I mean... Granted, maybe by honor, the shield bearer wasn't going to do anything but just hold the shield. But it just seems to me that the Israelite should get a whole separate shield bearer as well. I don't know what the takeaway from that is. Maybe it's just that the godless world cheats, I suppose. But verse 42, when the Philistine looked and saw David, he despised him because he was just a youth, healthy and handsome. See, the idea is this. This isn't going to be a win. 
this is going to be a slaughter. Where's the glory? Verse 43, he said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? So along with the sling and the stones, David did grab his staff as well. Then he, that is Goliath, cursed David by his gods. Israel's too wimpy. He just sends a shepherd out. Poor Yahweh doesn't have anybody else. Another moment where the law might be coming back to bite Goliath. He cursed David by his gods. He's using Yahweh to curse an Israelite. I brought this up last week. God says to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Come here, the Philistine called to David, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts. So this is the way of saying in that culture, I'll throw you on the side of the road like roadkill, right? No burial, no memorial service, just hunted into the wild, left for dead. There are other passages in the Bible that show how this sort of threat is the worst way to die for Israelites. There's, those passages are in your outline. So this is the illogical task Meeting with worldly wisdom happens in churches all too often, too. You want a what? Do you realize how much money that's going to cost? Do you realize what that's going to do to your family? Sure, we, we talk about stepping out on faith and risking, but we don't seek it out. <laughs> Have you thought that over? Have you thought this through? This sort of thing doesn't happen by the sorts of people you're surrounded by. Our church is too small to do that. You're inexperienced. You didn't go to school for that. <laughs> See, Saul was desperate, but it's obvious he still thought what David was doing was suicide. Sure enough, Goliath thought no different. I mean, we read this. We know this story too well because it doesn't shock us anymore. This is like a young man in a shirt, shorts, and sandals on a dirt bike armed with a baseball, driving up to a full-sized, fully armored, armed tank. There's no question about it. There's no need to make bets. No one would be dumb enough to put their money on the dirt bike. Verse 45, David said to the Philistine, You come against me with a sword, spear, and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord of armies, the God of the ranks of Israel. Here's the difference. Here is the difference that we, church, still fail to grapple. It's two ways of thinking. The worldly way, what's before us? What have we done to prepare? What ha have we accomplished? Have we thought it through? Have we deliberated enough? Are the statistics crunched? Are the check boxes marked? Are the lists done with? And then the way of the faith in God. Has he called me. Has he been faithful before? Do I trust he will be faithful now? Is it what the Spirit is beckoning me to? Don't hear me wrong. There is time and place for deliberation. But sometimes faith is risky. And the truth is, is these things are at odds with one another. The world's way of thinking and God's way of thinking. For as heaven is higher than earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We know that verse, we love that verse, we get that verse, but then we go to war with it every time it hits us. <laughs> this is the world's attitude. God's ways are so foreign that it's not shocking 
it's ludicrous. It's not higher, it's out there. Talk to a secular humanist, an atheist, and you will hear it. They will laugh you down and out. And even until I've been here, and I begin to wonder, have I been sucked in? (laughs) Paul even admits it. He says in his letter to the Corinthians, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. You hear that? Foolishness. The Greek word suggests folly, absurdity, dull thinking. Paul, a believer, understands that. I understand that. He says, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. For the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to, to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. (coughs) There is a world's grounding, a world's attitude, and it is that, that grounding and attitude that says what God does, who God is, how he saves and moves and works is foolish. It's not wise. It doesn't logically match up with what is seen and observed and tested and known. But in the Father's grounding and in the believer's attitude, it's just true. (laughs) It's how God operates. What he wills, he wills. What he wants to accomplish, so be it. If it doesn't make sense in our own little checkboxed, I-dotted, T-crossed world, who does God have to answer to? Himself? (laughs) Can you do that? Yes, I can. (laughs) You know, I just don't think that God will always call us to every question answered, every I dotted, every T crossed. Sometimes he'll call shepherd boys with stones to face down a giant decked in armor, cheating with a whole other man holding the shield for him. And every logical voice will rail against you and you will succeed anyway. David has no doubt in what God's about to do. He continues to say to the Philistines, you have defied him. Today the Lord will hand you over to me. Today I'll strike you down, remove your head, and give the corpses of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the wild creatures of the earth. David turns the table on Goliath's little earlier taunt. Oh, you think I'll die and become food for the animals? Well, today, after God's done with you, the whole ecosystem around here is going to feast on the corpses of the Philistines today. How about that? (laughs) The world needs to be careful with the way it taunts God. God has a way of not only reversing their own threats, but making it a whole lot worse. The story right here, or in Dean's class, they're reading the book of Esther, and we know about Haman who made a gallows for Mordecai, but Haman himself ends up hanging from it. 
The world crucifies God in the flesh, but God uses that to save humanity with it in triumph over the powers of darkness. Goliath has some weighty words for David, but it backfires. But now David gives the reasoning for why God will be victorious. Why God is trustworthy enough, why God providentially called David from keeping sheep to pass the battle line and now is face to face with the champion of the Philistines. Why David didn't need armor, Israel's warrior's weapons, all he needed was faith and obedience. He says, then all the world will know that Israel has a God and this whole assembly will know that it is not by sword or by spear that the Lord saves for the battle is the Lord's. He will hand you over to us. It's not by sword, not by spear, but the battle is the Lord's. Do you know that today? See, if you're confused by Paul's words, by this fact, yes, I know the cross is foolish, folly, dull-minded to many, but I believe it in any, anyways. But if you want to know why did God set it up that way, it's because God wants, to know, wants the world to know that he is. He exists. God wants people to know why a man with a baseball on a dirt bike could be victorious over a fully armed battle tank. Why a shepherd with five stones really only needs one of those stones to take down a fully armed giant. God wants people to know why a Jewish rural rabbi wrongfully accused and executed by the world's powers is what saves us from sin. Because it seems so outlandish, so out there, because it is evidence of God among us. It is evidence of God at work. And evidence is invitation. Invitation to believe that he is who he says he is. Evidence that says in a dark world, God has shown up as light and the light overcomes the darkness. You know, I started this sermon in its first draft. I think I started many of my sermons in 1 Samuel 17 in this memorable story of David versus Goliath with a little bug that's been bothering me saying the Bible is about Jesus. I've been wanting to itch it to get this story under the rightful lens of Jesus as the son of David onto paper. If you read the Goliath Must Fall book, that was one of the author's major points. What if we're not David? What if Jesus is David? And that is true, and maybe I'll hit it next week. And maybe some of us want to distance ourselves from David then because, well, if David is Jesus, I'm not Jesus. Maybe some of you might be thinking, Kevin, you seem to be slowly challenging us to be like David. But I'm sure if I was in that war, I'd be just as stagnant as one of the other Israelites. Maybe, maybe I'd be like Jonathan, who, according to the rest of the book of 1 Samuel, wasn't an enemy of David nor a bad example, but he just didn't rise to the task here, did he? We, we can't all be David, Kevin. All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What if by God's grace you are equipped to be, to be like David here? What if the difference between you fulfilling any grand task that God might be calling you to fulfill is not a matter of your resources, your money, your time, your health, your age, your abilities. 
What if the only thing that keeps you from fulfilling God's mission for your life is one thing and one thing alone? Faith. Faith that God is the one who called you. He is the one who will be faithful to complete it. Sounds like a song we sang today. Faith that the world's grounding and the world's attitude can predict the outcome all they want, but the Father will decide the outcome the way He wants. See, faith in God should, should change for us, should change the challenge. The challenge is not, can I accomplish the greater things God is calling me to do? No, the challenge is, will I accomplish the greater things that God is calling me to do? Because it's not a question of ability. It's a question of obedience. See, the ability question is null and void. Do you hear that? The ability question is null and void. There is nothing in the world that God can call you to do and you not be able to do it. That category does not exist. The question that remains is obedience. God can call you to anything He wants to because He will be the one accomplishing it. He's the one who slays giants with shepherds and slingshots. Will you be obedient? Will you be available? And will you be willing? Here's a question I ask. What holds me back? The difficulty? The questions? Because a lot of us know either A, how to climb Mount Everest, or B, be trained to climb Mount Everest, but we don't do it. Even though the sights might be worth it, we still don't do it because of the difficulty, right? We have the ability, just not the energy. Even if it need, requires getting a helicopter and going to the summit. We just don't want the drama. We don't want the experience. It sounds tiring. It sounds challenging. I don't know about you, but I already knew this this week. I already knew that the only thing keeping me back from answering God on the big tasks is not a lack of ability, but a lack of obedience. A lack of energy. Don't want to rock the boat. And it's sad because it robs us of answering that challenge to accomplish greater things. It robs our children from legacies of faithfulness. Do I want my kids to say, well, of course Dad was a Christian. He read his Bible every day. He went to church. Or do I want my kids to say, of course my dad is, or my mom is a Christian, and then they name off something that sounds like it belongs in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, where Noah built an ark to save the world because of faith. Abraham left everything and went to the promised land because of faith. David fought wars because of faith. Nowhere does it say, because my dad read his Bible and went to church because of faith. What is God calling you to today? And if you're honest, you know it's not a lack of ability, but it's a lack of obedience. And because of disobedience on our part, we are not rising to the challenge of greater things. One more thing that I don't want to dismiss. What if the greater thing is a greater thing like the disciple Andrew? What if the disciple says, my dad is a Christian, he's the disciple Andrew. Without him, the disciple Peter wouldn't have been introduced to Jesus. What if the greater thing doesn't have to be up front and center, but obedience in all things, even things that seem small, are still very much necessary?
And sometimes the small things, the enemy has a way of even creeping up and trying to rob us of those opportunities of obedience. That person will never be saved. Don't waste your time on him. They'll chew you out if you talk to him. What if it's this? Who was praying for Saul of Tarsus? I want to meet that person. I'm never going to pray for that politician. Right? You want me to fast for that guy, <laughs> Lord? Are you off your rocker, Lord? You want me to fast for that guy? Well, that makes no sense. Yeah, it's rather illogical, but God's calling you to do it. We know, or at least think about all the time, what David killing Goliath did for Israel, for the Bible, and for the Christians who are impacted by it, for lots of people. But what did it do for David? The book reads like he never broke a sweat in the whole process. But if David's human, even if it's just for a nanosecond, as he's walking out there with his stones, did he ask, what am I even doing here? And whenever God was faithful, as David knew him to be, what did that do for David? My point is, is whatever the greater thing that God's calling you to do, you have the ability. You just need to be obedient. Let's pray. Father, it's sad that we are so familiar with human nature that a, a passage, a message like this can convict us. We'll walk a home, chew on it. But then time will give way to complacency. Complacency will give way to forgetfulness. And we'll be quick to, mm, we're, not, we're not disobeying, we're just ignoring you. Father, if there is something that you, a seed that you have planted today with these words, be faithful to bring it to fruition. Father, with the, with the Father in the Bible who prays, I believe, help my unbelief. That's our prayer today. Father, we have a younger generation watching us. We have family members watching us. And maybe reading our Bible and praying while it is good for the soul and we should do it every day. Maybe while that doesn't speak to them, what you are calling us to will speak to them. Father, help us to be obedient to you. Help us to be like Jesus. Holy Spirit, please speak loud and clear and keep us, keep us unsettled until we're willing to answer you. May we not neglect you or offend you into silence because you've tried for so long and we're not listening. Help us to be listening and attentive today. Help us to do what you call us to do. Father, our ability is not what's in question. Only thing that's being questioned right now is our obedience. Father, we love you. We thank you. We know that you will give us the power to be faithful. Help us to live into that. We ask and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Kevin Davis here, pastor at Woodland Fringe Church. First of all, thank you if you tune in from week to week. Uh, we're glad to have a church outside of the four walls here. And I pray that everything you hear 
would help you grow in your faith. Hey, I want to let you know about a ministry that Woodland Fringe Church does not officially support. It's just something that I support from time to time personally. And uh, this is only uh, one way I can think about getting the word out. Take a look at vermontchurchplanting.com. Yep, talking about the state, vermontchurchplanting.com. And if you feel so inclined to give, if you're not giving anywhere, or if you want to give above what you're giving at your local church, I want to direct you there. Uh, You can find links to give there, uh, see what they're about. They have their own podcast. So, yeah, that's one thing that um, I would encourage you to support. Thanks for listening in. We'll hear or we'll see you next time.